Anyone, anyone want to have just a massive slumber party here tonight? Anyone just hopes it snows like three foot while we're in here tonight? Wouldn't that be amazing? It's a massive, see a bunch of people actually shaking their head no. Like actually that would be incredibly grody. Uh, anyway, it's, uh, it's great to be with you guys. Um, a couple of big thanks I need to, to pour out. First of all, uh, to all of you who came out and uh, helped us serve down at the building uh, last Saturday, uh, thank you so much for coming and painting and serving. Um, you did an unbelievable job outside of the uh, much paint that got on the carpet and uh, the primer that got on people's faces. Outside of that, it, it was amazing, and so well done there. Um, so thank you. It actually leads me to my second thank you. Many of you know at 10.30 uh, Saturday, uh, my wife called me while we were there, and I had to, uh, we had to take our son Maddox to the ER and uh, I definitely wasn't expecting that um, I would be coming here tonight still from staying in the hospital. We have been in the hospital since Saturday with our, my youngest son of seven months, Maddox. He has a RSV, which sounds like a Bible translation, but it is a, a lung, uh, a lung um, virus, essentially. And it breaks your heart when you have to see your little kid, uh, your little boy hooked up to oxygen. And that's been the case. However, uh, they've just today weaned him off the oxygen in the hopes that tonight he'll go all night with no pipage or whatever they call it, things hooked up to him, and in the hopes that we can go home tomorrow. Uh, me, anywhere in a small room for five days becomes troublesome, uh, especially for my wife and the nurses and those involved. So honestly, it's just great to be here with you tonight. This is like my breakout party here tonight. So we're going to give it a go, see what happens. Not exactly sure uh, what's going to happen, but um, I, I really, really am grateful for uh, your love uh, of our family. We've been showered with uh, texts and calls and dinners and all kinds of things. And so thank you, especially for loving my wife, um, uh, watching her uh, mother my son in this time. It makes me love her all the more. And so I really appreciate it. Tonight we have a rare opportunity. Um, we're between two books. So we're done studying uh, Daniel. Next week we'll launch into Hebrews. And that means tonight we have this incredible chance uh, to teach something from the scriptures that I believe is incredibly poignant for us as a church tonight. I'm, I'm really excited because I feel like this chance, this rare opportunity tonight to step back out of a series or out of a book and teach something that hits us right between the eyes, I think, is incredible. But before we uh, uh, get there, I need to share uh, something with you. If I were to ask you what, what your favorite place in the world would be, there would be all kinds of answers, like your favorite absolute place in the world. There would be all kinds of probably beach scenes and mountain scenes and, you know, whatever kind of, maybe a restaurant is your favorite place. I don't know. But for me, starting uh, about from third grade until my senior year of college, there was one place that if I was there, I just, it was, it was unbelievable. It was awesome. And it may not be a place that you're expecting, but, but that place is the football huddle, the football offensive huddle, to be more specific. Uh, is any, so how many of you guys have experienced a football offensive huddle, okay? Females, I'm so sorry. Um, I hope one day you can experience this. But listen, it's It's unbelievable. Even in third grade, because I, I started playing quarterback in third grade on the, on the playground, mostly to impress the ladies, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, and then as I progressed, it, you know, my motive changed. Then it was to impress the woman, uh, the women, rather, you know what I'm saying? That's a joke and didn't go over well. Anyway, um, <laughs> quarterback in the huddle is such an unbelievable feeling. And in high school especially, you get there and you have, this, you have a really massive game against a big, hearty opponent. And to be able to stand in this circle... Of, of guys and call the play and watch the and see the dirt on their jersey and, and they're all listening. It's an unbelievable feeling. Seriously, there are a few feelings like it, at least for me. And I think the thing that's most overwhelming about the football huddle is that as I call out a play, for instance, in high school it would have been uh, roll right, 42, belly left, is, is everyone, all 11 of us, as I call out the play, all have a different role. It's unbelievable. I say like a few numbers and a couple animals, which is oftentimes a, a play call in, a, in football for you girls. You're like, this is really strange, right? You need to experience it, trust me, right? But in one fail swoop, just with a few phrases, all of these different people are all going to have a different job and yet the same task and yet the same job, all working towards the same end. It's strategy, it's, it's vision, it's, it's mission. It's like the chance to stand at the helm of these guys. And you'll see the NFL guys, they have like different poses. I love it. Drew Brees has got like the lean in. He like, have you seen him? He like calls the plays like this. He's like, all right, boys, let's do this, you know. And, and more like confident males like do it differently. 
but the chance to see a... What happened over here? This is, is, are you a New Orleans fan? Okay, no. Okay, nice. You, you like the Drew Brees dig there. Okay, right on, bro. That was pandemonium over here. I don't know what's going on, right? The opportunity to do that for me has been unbelievable. And I think ultimately the thing that I love most about it is just the, the strategy involved. Like getting together with a bunch of men and strategizing together in the pursuit of something that's more. Um, honestly, my wife and I have had to do that some in the hospital, which you would have definitely laughed at at times. Uh, every, uh, in, in the middle of the night, for instance, we've been averaging about two or three nights, uh, two or three hours of sleep. And, and every night, like, they, they're coming in with breathing treatments, and the nurses are coming in, and so we're having to, like, coordinate and strategize, like, who's up, who's sleeping, and where are they sleeping. Uh, my bed uh, has been the crib, okay? So I've been sleeping like, like this on this crib for four nights, okay? So, like, my back is all messed up. But I, I love strategy. And w- w- when you start throwing out the word strategy as it pertains to the Bible, people start to get a little weirded out. They think that uh, strategy is like a business term. It's corporate. And it doesn't have any part to do in church or in the scriptures. But to that I beg to differ. When I look at the life of Christ, I see tremendous vision, tremendous strategy, and I see him gathering others around that strategy, mission, and vision so that they can then go and implement that strategy, mission, and vision. And so tonight I want to look at a particular text that I feel like embodies are Matthias's lot, strategy, vision, and mission. I want to encourage us tonight with what we're doing here as a church. And that should be an incredibly important question for you. Any time, especially as a believer, that you sit in a pew or underneath someone's teaching or in a seat somewhere in something that's called the church, you better be at least curious or interested, what are they doing here? Is this just some, like, service that they're putting on? What's their strategy? What's their mission? What's their vision? So to accomplish that tonight, this incredible passage, I want you guys to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. The page number is on your screen. Ephesians chapter 4. Now, I want to give you some context on Ephesians briefly. This strategy, mission, vision that Jesus came to show, portray, ultimately die, and then be raised again under, eventually got to this man named Saul. Saul was a persecutor of Christians. He was killing them. He was a Pharisee, a strong man. God saves him, changes his name to Paul, and as many of you know, he goes on to write most of the New Testament, becomes one of the greatest missionaries of all time, and becomes for us a true model. Now, One of the strategies of Paul was church planting. Matthias is a church plant. For those of you that don't know this, we started five and a half years ago. It's, it's, that's why they call it a plant. And and I'm not a ego to, like plant, I'm not a plant person, a vegetarian. I'm not a vegetarian, but I know this, all right? Is that when you plant something in the ground, is, is ultimately like the hope is that it grows. You start something, it starts from a seed, and that's what church planting is. And that's what Paul was doing. He was going to these different cities, specifically in an area of the world called Asia Minor, And he was planting churches, starting them from the ground up, building leadership, growing doctrine, a true understanding of who Jesus is. But Paul couldn't stay there long. He would have to journey on. And so he would plant these churches in Asia Minor, and then eventually, often, he would write back to them. He would hear things about the church going on, and he would focus on maybe a particular problem or a thing that he can encourage them in, and then he would write letters back to them. This, Ephesians, is one of those letters. He, there, he was there, planted a church, and he's writing a letter back. Now, a, a quick note about Ephesus. Ephesus, and he writes this in 62 AD. He's in a Roman prison when he writes this letter. Ephesus is a massive center for the occult, magic, sorcery. This whole area of the world, Ephesus, it worships uh, literally the breast goddess Artemis, Okay? She's a sex goddess, and the entire, uh, the entire Asia Minor world around uh, Ephesus worships her. In fact, the major trade in Ephesus is making these Artemises, uh, if that's the appropriate term, right? And when Paul comes there in Acts 19, one of my favorite stories, the one thing he calls out uh, the people in Ephesus t- uh, to do, he says, man-made gods are no gods at all. So he takes the major trade of the land, making these Artemis dolls, essentially, and he says these aren't gods at all. And he winds up in this massive coliseum. Read it in Acts 19 later. Beautiful picture. 
But in this understanding of Ephesus and Ephesians, what he's doing is he's implementing in them strong doctrine of what it means to truly be a Christian. It's crazy enough to to understand this, but the early writers of the Bible actually believed that if you were a Christian, that meant something. Like that it wasn't just a title or a term that you could throw around flippantly. But that if you were going to claim relationship with Jesus, it literally meant that your life would portray it. Crazy, right? But that's what the early writers thought. If you were a follower of Christ or an Acts called the way, then your entire existence is to be changed. And so that's what Paul is writing here. The church in Ephesus saying, no, 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 you have to understand this life of Christ means change. So let's get the beautiful picture here beginning in verse 17 of what his strategy was. Verse 17, I want to read a few verses here just to give us some context. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ, verse 21. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through, de- through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Much work to do. Let's start again in verse 17. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. First of all, what is he saying here that a Gentile is? Well, the, the initial thought would, would that it would be the opposite of a Jew. So you have Jews, anyone who is a Jew, and then anyone else is biblically called a Gentile. But that's not what he means here. A Gentile can also biblically mean simply a, a non-believer, someone who doesn't believe in Christ. First Peter affirms this. Check this out. First Peter chapter 4, verse 3 says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. What he's saying is, look, like we need, to, we need to rid of this mentality of the Gentile, of the unbeliever. We need to stop walking in, what does he call? The futility of their minds. Uh, how many of you guys just absolutely love vocabulary? Any people, just your vocabulary? How many of you guys actually get the Webster's Dictionary Word of the Day? Any of you guys? I love that. Like, that is the coolest thing ever. And what I'm in the practice of doing is just using those words in consistently the wrong context, you know? I'll just, I'll get a word on my phone or whatever, it'll pop up, and then I'll just try to use it like three or four times. And, but you can amaze people because they think you're incredibly smart, but you're using it in the wrong context, you know? And I can't even think of an example because they get too ludicrous. But, futile is one of those awesome vocabulary words. Here's what it means. It means filling your mind with things that lead to absolutely nothing. That's what futility is. That's what being futile is. It means you're filling your mind with things that will absolutely lead to nothing, to nowhere. Somewhat depressing, isn't it? Those who don't believe in Christ, it seems like they have tremendous purpose. They have jobs, making money, going to school, raising kids, all of these things that have value and depth in our culture. But if you don't believe in Christ... The tough truth that Paul is trying to remind his readers is that it's worthless. It's only Christ that worth is found. It's only in Christ where we have value in anything. And so when he says in verse 17, no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, what he's saying is, rid of this worthless way of thinking that will lead you to nowhere. There's something more powerful. And then he says this in verse 18, they are, they are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Now this this gets tricky. The ignorance that is in them. We hear this biblically over and over. The ignorance that is in them. And we begin to think that somehow there's a connection between being generally ignorant and not knowing Jesus. But that's not true. Some of the smartest people to ever walk the face of the planet have hardened hearts don't know Christ, and therefore are ignorant to Jesus. Are you with me? They're not ignorant culturally. 
I mean, they're brilliant. They could stand on a podium, all us all, in all kinds of knowledge. But if they don't know Jesus, then they are ignorant towards the cross. A famous uh, scripture, Corinthians, says this about that. Put this, uh, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This unbelievable thought that you could take the most smart human being who would get, I don't know, what, what's the top ACT score nowadays? It's like a 44 or something? It's what, 36? Okay, this would be a really cool moment for us, wouldn't it? Just to like write your ACT score on your, like a, and show your neighbor or something, right? Wouldn't that be? Okay, anyway, like think of the smartest person who would get a 36 on their ACT and you put them up here on the podium. Brilliant. And yet if they don't know Christ, the scripture says that, that they're darkened and, and ignorant. That the cross is folly to them. It means nothing. And those people, listen, spend their entire existence filling their domes with knowledge that ultimately leads nowhere. Listen, as I've been sitting in this hospital room for multiple days and holding my son, the thing that keeps coming to my heart is how blessed I am to be called a child of God. How encouraging it is to know the truth of Christ and that no matter whether Christ even would take my little baby or he would take me, kill me early, whatever would happen, take my life, that I know the truth and that truth ultimately, as Jesus said, would set me free. It's unbelievable to not have to stand on some podium and shoot out cultural rhetoric and awe people with brilliance of this world but ultimately have nothing he says, rid of this kind of mentality. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from this brilliant life of God. Isn't the life of God unbelievable? When did we ever get this concept that the life of God was attached to burdens? For me, growing up, a lot of ways it was Sunday school class. Uh, some, some of you guys grew up in church, others of you didn't. Uh, for me, Sunday school was like, honestly, it was, it was like, it was horrible. I mean, this teacher, my Sunday school teacher growing up, thought they were Moses. And, um, and, so, and so he would, like, he would like bring in the law on the tablets in our Sunday school room, you know. And he would set the Ten Commandments there on the table. And not only, not only would we have to recite them, but if we ever like sinned or screwed something up, he would take this like hard brick, you know, and just like it was just this, this religious mentality. And so, I, listen, I grew up thinking that the life of God wasn't what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the life of God as this rich, fruitful, blessed way of living. But I grew up thinking that it was like rules and regulations and things that would ultimately burden me and pull me down. And when you're, when you're trapped in that kind of mentality and lifestyle, then you don't worship in freedom. You don't live in freedom. You live condemned by the law, and that's not under grace anymore. You see what I'm saying, church? This life of God, is, he's, he's trying to get in their mentality the freedom that comes in this. Verse 19, I love this picture. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Uh, the, the Greek word uh, for callous is apogeo. And apogeo means um, the lack of ability to feel grief. Uh, you guys have all had calluses before. Uh, if you're a dude in here and had to lift any kind of weight in your life, okay, no matter how big or small, uh, that, that metal bar, like gave, it built up some calluses. Remember, like you, you first got a blister, like on this part right here? That's the, that's the money pad right there, right? It's like third over, for whatever reason, on both the, you know, you, you get the, bru or you get the, the little, uh, uh, what's it called? The, uh, what did I just say? The, 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 no, not the callus, but you get the blister. The blister comes first, that wretched blister, and then you're like debating, pop it or not, pop it or not, right? And, and then after a while, it builds this callus. And so the image is like no longer can you, no longer do you feel the pain that you felt when it was blistered, but now it's kind of, it's, it's hardened. That's the picture that he's saying here, like you're numb. These kind of people, these kind of Gentiles, these kind of people who don't believe in God, they become numb, callous. They don't feel remorse over their sin. When they sin, they don't feel the consequence of it. They don't repent. They remain hardened in heart. 
In verse 20, would you please see this verse with me? But that is not the way you learned Christ. That is not the way you learned Christ. The Gentiles, hardened in heart, callous, no grief, no shame, religious, futile minds, filled with nothingness. That's not the way you learn Christ. You see what he's doing? He's writing from prison in 62 AD, and he's writing to the church in Ephesus and saying, that is not the way you learn Christ. You learn differently. Don't for a second begin to think that the way you learn Christ looks like this, because it looks nothing, it looks nothing like this. This is why I love the early biblical writers. They had this deep passion for the, what, the way you're living and what you believe are deeply connected. We're going to come back to verse 20 and I want to keep moving. Verse 21. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. It's not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you were, you were, you, you were learning him. You were taught in Christ. Let me give you some illustrations here. Every night at my house, most every night. We do, we do family worship, okay? So I gather my kids around, which pretty much at this point means Avery, like Dawson's banging on the walls, or, you know, and Maddox, you know, bah, bah, you know, so it's, it's Avery right now, okay? But what we do is we gather around, and we pray together, we sing songs, and some of you have s- seen me sing songs with my kids, and maybe I'll YouTube at some point, but, you, you know, I get crazy, it's a lot of fun, and I make a complete fool of myself to my family, I love it. But what, what I do then is I teach them the Bible, a lot of these same concepts that we're teaching, I'm trying to teach my daughter. And as you're like starting to get this, this picture, like learning Christ and assuming that you've heard about him and, and taught in him, you begin to get this picture of something that's, that's scholarly, right? And, and I question a lot of times, like, what will happen to my kids if God ultimately doesn't save them? I, I've, I've poured in all of this knowledge of the Bible, I, I've told them who Jesus is. I've showed them what Jesus has done in me. But, but what, if, like, what if God doesn't save them? What, what if they go their whole life not knowing Jesus? Then it's worthless. And that's humbling. But it's not worthless, even now, If God ultimately saves my kid, and this is the big thing that people need to get in their domes about teaching young children the truths of Jesus, listen, if Avery, I pray, 12, 13, 14, whatever the age is, and God says, you're mine, at that moment, do you understand what happens? As she begins relationship with Jesus, she's had all of this knowledge Who Jesus is, she's seen what it looks like. Now combat and join with a heart change. All of this backing of knowledge, when joined with a heart change, all of this stuff now becomes gold. Now all of a sudden she's like, oh yeah, daddy, I remember when you were teaching me about grace. And daddy, now grace makes sense because I've experienced it. Yes, yes. And so what should we do with our children? We should teach them the truths of, of, of Jesus. We should pour into them. All right? But many of you didn't grow up in the church. Your parents aren't and weren't believers. And so at the moment that you got connected either with this church or another community or uh, someone relationally, you started hearing the truth of Jesus and, and your heart was opened, the darkness turned to light. When that happened in you, you started relationship with him. You began this journey of understanding who Jesus is. Now, I say all this to say, what about other religions? This is where it gets tough, doesn't it? If Jesus is the only way, if he's the only way, and I just said, it's not just mental exercise. If ultimately one day God saves my kid, And all this knowledge joined with heart change becomes gold. What about the people that are spending their lives learning about gods that aren't real? What about those people? And some Christians at response to this question just get angry. We're right, they're wrong. I don't know about you, I don't get angry, my heart breaks. And I mean that. My heart breaks. 
Because I do believe in the Bible. I do believe that Jesus is the only way. And so I believe that any other religion, they're filling their minds with things that are, what's the word? With futile. They're filling their minds with things that are helping them feel better about eternity or their family structure or whatever it may be, but they're filling their minds with futile ways. But you, but you have the opportunity to learn about the blessed Christ, the one in whom is real grace, real truth, real power. What an opportunity, what a blessing you have. And so I want to encourage you with tonight, not the, not the pharisaical way of thinking, that here our, our hope is just to pour in truth, 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 all from this scholarly perspective. No. We're praying in you and in me that knowledge and heart change join because that's the difference between Christianity and every other religion. Jesus changes hearts and minds and every other world religion messes and changes the mind. You see the difference? Now, I back up and I'm not going to have time to go into this, but there is clearly a spiritual element to things that aren't of Christ as well. You see what I'm saying? There is an enemy. Uh, Ephesians tells us that there is a ruler of the kingdom of the air. His name is in the Hebrew, Hasatan, Satan. So there is a real power in some of those religions, especially they deal with the occult and magic. So I'm not going to say that there's no spiritualism to any other religion because that's not the case. But there's only one that changes the heart, and that's Jesus. Are you with me? Now we need to set that up to be able to see what he says here in verse 22. So what does he say then? Don't live like these Gentiles. That's not the way you learn Jesus. Verse 22. So put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, in the the Greek, what he's doing here, he's giving us an imagery of putting on clothes and taking off clothes. That's the whole imagery here. Take off and put on. Let me try to... um, Let's say you wore the same pair of clothes... uh, uh, I, if I said a week right now, like many of you college would be, oh yeah, that's me right now. Like I've been walking the shirt for like seven days, you know? And you've mastered like the, the Febreze spray. Like you just got Febreze everywhere. Oh, I'm good, you know? And when I go home next month, we'll wash this, but I can rock it until then, right? Listen, let's imagine every single one of you, uh, you, you had a, a pair of clothes and you decided, all right, I'm going to wear this for seven years straight, seven years. Not, no change, okay? Maybe you could shower, whatever. Seven years. So seven years, you live life. Same jeans, same shirt, same everything. Okay, seven years. And after that seven years, after things had become crusty, let's say, right? After seven years, all of a sudden someone said, hey, you know what? Here's the deal. Uh, why, don't we go out and buy a new, why don't we go out and buy some new clothes? Okay, in fact, I'll buy them for you, brother. As much as I love you, like you smell like cow that's dead and has been for three years. Like that's what you smell like, you know? Like, so here, here's, here's a new pair of clothes. The image that he's trying to portray here is if you in that moment living seven years in the same pair of clothes and then seven years later you were given this new set of digs and you put it on, new shirt, new everything, maybe even a little cologne. This kind of thinking, like the Gentile, is still desirous of the old clothes. Like you put on this whole new fresh pair of clothes, shirt, everything, and yet you still desire the old. How ignorant now does that sound? No, no, give, give me the grotesque smelling, incredibly dirty, people defying. Like, give me that stuff because that's what I want. What he's saying is, put off the old self. The old has got to go. And when you don't, as a believer, because now he's transitioned. That's not the way you learn Christ. When you don't, what you're saying is, no, I like the old clothes better. They taste better, they smell better, they portray me better. But do they? And for you who who in here claim Christianity, claim to be a Christ follower, and yet you're still constantly dabbling and dabbling and dabbling on the hamster wheel of sin, what you're saying is, I like the old way better. When the new way is the life of God, it's the grace of Christ, it's this blessed opportunity to know the truth. You see what he's saying? 
So he says again, put off the old self, which belongs to the former way of life, the old man, and is corrupt. It's completely corrupt. Deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Romans 12 says this a whole other way, a beautiful way. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Verse 24, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This beautiful picture of what Christ does. Not just truth in the head. Not just knowledge. Not just us coming together and saying, yeah, Jesus is really good and here's what we're going to learn and now I can tell you all the things about ancient Ephesus. What Jesus does is he takes head and heart and changes both. So that now we look at the old self and say, never! I don't even want to get a hint of this. The new tastes better, is way better, is not futile. I'm filling my mind with things of worth and of value. You see what I'm saying? This beautiful picture all centered around learning Jesus. Unbelievable phrase that he uses here. Jesus only uses it once. He says, learn from me in Matthew chapter 11. Learn Jesus. The question that is begged of all of us here tonight, and this is where we're going to start talking strategy, is if Paul says the new way of life is connected with learning Jesus, and learning Jesus isn't just head but it's heart, then how are we going to learn Jesus? You see what I'm saying? Look what he says here in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with what? with his neighbors, for we are members of one another. So this learning Jesus process that believers are supposed to undergo, that can even benefit the unbeliever, especially when God saves, is not just an individual exercise, it's community. And so any church you step in, any place that is claiming the biblical truths, the thing you better be asking is, how are we going to learn Jesus here? What are we doing to learn Jesus? And not just head, but the morphing of the heart so that within this body, I'm continually being reminded the old needs to be killed because the new is great. You see what I'm saying, church? So the question for us is, is so how are we going to learn Jesus? Matthias' lot, what's your strategy here to learn Jesus? And so I want to take a few moments, if I could, to tell you what God has impressed on our heart about how we're learning Jesus. And I want to say this before I share these things. Uh, some of you guys, um, you come here and participate on a Wednesday and it's great and you're connected at another church on Sunday. And, and it's not that I'm saying that that's wrong, but what I am saying is you need to find a church body that you can serve with, grow with, learn Jesus with, and love with. And if it's Matthias, fine. If it's some other church down the street that's biblically sound, fine. But every time that you're here and you're connected at another church, it's time that you're potentially taking away relationally from that body. You see what I'm saying? You could be spending time with those people, learning Jesus with those people. And again, I'm not saying if you're doing that that you're necessarily wrong, but in time, it creates this mentality that you're just here to feed from the buffet. I'll just come here like it's Ponderosa Steakhouse. I'll get what I need here. I'll get what I need over there. And I'll never serve. That's not what we're trying to do. Our desire is to make missionaries. And when you want to make missionaries, you need to be able to look across the room and say, these people are in too. And not if you're here and an unbeliever. Keep coming. We love that you're here. But if you're a believer and you're church hopping all around, I pray that God would convict you of where it is that you're supposed to serve and get connected and start following Christ and learning Jesus with those people. See what I'm saying? So all that to say, this strategy is what we at Matthias have been called to do. So, first slide here. Here's how we're going to learn Jesus here at Matthias. All right? The first layer for us of learning Jesus is corporate. Is this. So we're going to gather on Wednesdays, and we're going to teach the truths of the Scripture, and we're going to worship together, and we're going to go verse by verse like many of you have seen as we uh, start Hebrews. We're going to go verse by verse, and we're going to plow through the whole entire book of Hebrews. It's going to take us a year. The reason why we do that, we don't want to hide from hard scriptures, so we're going to go verse by verse. 
the first layer of our strategy of learning Jesus corporate. Let's come together as a body, all of us together. Let's grow, let's be taught the scriptures, and let's dig in. It's also the easiest. By far the easiest. And that's why churches in America are filled with people that think learning Jesus is only corporate. I can go, I can sit in a pew somewhere, I can say hi to a few people to make myself feel good, and then I pop out the door. That is not learning Jesus. It's, it's but a piece of it. And so I want you, and we keep hounding this point here at Matthias, is if you're here and connected in no other way, you're loosely a part of this church. That's not our church. It's just this corporate gathering. There's so much more. It's a piece of how we're learning. It's a piece of how we're taught, but just a piece. Are you with me? Next slide. The next piece for us, the next layer in learning Jesus, is communal. Now, this is what happens when all of a sudden you take the corporate and you make the corporate smaller. You start getting together in smaller groups. And for us, that happens in a lot of families on Sunday. The big corporate gathering here and on Sunday, right now in eight different homes, we gather with people to hold one another accountable, to look each other eye to eye, face to face. And this is why people don't like small groups. I don't want to look people in the eye. I don't want to have to talk about my sin. I don't want to have to talk with anyone. It's much easier to walk in, sing a few songs, give a clap at the end, and walk out. That's not what we're after. We want to learn Jesus. And so to learn Jesus means we need to meet together in homes, wrestle with the scripture together, hold one another accountable, affirm one another, encourage one another. And that can only happen in a smaller setting. It's not going to happen like this because there's no possible way, especially as we continue to grow, that you're going to be able to meet every single person. And some of you grew up with the church mentality is, I need to know every single person in my church community. That would be great. It's probably not likely. But you certainly can get to know a smaller group of people, can't you? And I don't care if you have a personality like me or if you're shy McGee. Either one is fine, right? But still, the call is communal relationships, And so for us on Sundays, we sit in living rooms and we eat and we fellowship and we dig in God's scriptures and we ask questions. And if you want to participate vocally, you can, but no one's like holding a knife to your head saying, talk now. It's not like that. Like when people sometimes come to my come to my home for a lot family they're like so I was really curious of what the like if you guys passed out the Kool-Aid or like how this works here at this small group like if there's human sacrifice or what you do here you know there's none of that it's just the opportunity for people to gather and be be authentic can I encourage you with this you can come in and out of here and live a complete fake life and it can be done in a small group but it's much more difficult When someone's seeing you week in and week out, and they're not just asking you how the Rams did on Sunday, but they're asking difficult questions about your life, it's it's way more difficult to keep lying. And what we love here at Matthias, pushing to be a church that's anti-gossip and anti-judgment, is that what I found is people feel okay raising their hand and saying, I'm in desperate need of help. I'm an addict, porn, alcohol, drugs. I'm a consumer. My marriage is in trouble. Whatever it is, we've seen that people are okay with raising their hand and saying, here's who I am because I know you'll love me through it. And so our second strategy of learning Jesus here at Matthias is a lot of families, small groups, small community, learning, holding each other accountable, experiencing life, and wrestling together. Uh, the third layer is this, individual for us, it was burdened on my heart. Many of you guys have heard this story. I grew up in a church where people talked about discipleship and no one ever did it. I grew up in uh, an understanding of the gospel where if you ask the common church, uh, church member, what is discipleship, they would answer, well, that's what Jesus calls us to do. Okay, how are you doing that? I'm not sure. What I realized here at Matthias is we had never taken an opportunity just to teach on what discipleship is. And so this past spring and summer, after five years worth of research, we sat back and we wrote an entire biblical understanding of what discipleship is. And for us right now, this has literally become what I believe is the the breath of Matthias. This church is discipleship, one-on-one, 
woman versus uh, woman and woman and man and man wrestling with the truths of Scripture, digging into each other's life, a clear dis- disciple, a clear discipler pouring in. It's something I've longed for all my life. Older men pouring in. It's something you females, I hope that you're longing for. Older females pouring in. More spiritually mature, more seasoned, more understanding. And what we're doing here at Matthias is not just working through a manual, but learning how to replicate. Learning how to take the strategy of Jesus and literally pouring it into others that it can just keep going. And so here it's not just a corporate gathering. Here it's not just small groups. Here it's one-on-one. Men meeting with men. Women meeting with women. Women discipling, pouring into each other. And so far, though, it's messy. It's unbelievably beautiful. And as Jared already pointed out, we've literally hired someone where this is all they do. I've never been to a church that just said, you know what, discipleship is so important. What you're going to do is you're going to take this and just implement with your people. But we believe in it so strongly. We said, Jared, not only are, are you tall, but we believe you're extremely gifted. So why don't you come and lead this for us, right? And so he's doing it. And so we're learning Jesus corporately. We're learning Jesus communally. We're learning Jesus individually. To what end? Next slide. There's one end. And that is simply the person of Jesus. Not so we can walk away from a corporate setting and say, man, guy's got a, pill- a pretty killer band, which we do, clearly. But, but, but that's not the focus. Or not so that we can come in a small group and say, we're being authentic now. Do you guys see the difference? Because we can be just as check-off list in that way as we can be with religion. We can say, well, I'm in a small group. I'm being real. I have a discipleship partner, so I'm discipling. That doesn't mean anything. If you're just doing it in some real religious way, you see. Jesus is the chief end. So that, next slide, it all can leave. We're learning Jesus to leave. We're learning Jesus corporately to walk out these doors. We're learning Jesus on a lot family setting so that we can walk out of those homes and better reveal Jesus to a lost and dying world. We're learning Jesus in discipleship, not to hold this precious gift of life, God, that, uh, that Paul talked about, but so it literally goes. Our strategy here at Matthias is learn Jesus, not just with head, but with heart change, so that all of you have the potential to be a missionary. And not necessarily a missionary that's going to go uh, somewhere over the world, but a missionary in your workplace, on your athletic field, wherever it is that you are. Many of you know that I play college football. Many of you have heard the story that by my sophomore year of college, 15 of my football teammates had given their life to Christ. I was learning what it was to be a missionary on a college campus as a football player. It's those kind of things that we're learning. Not so that we gather here and say, Matthias is awesome, but so that we leave here saying, Jesus is incredible. That's our strategy. And for you, you have this amazing opportunity to say, is, is that what I want to do? The Bible is clear. Jesus says, learn from me. Paul says, we need to learn Jesus together. Our heart is to learn Christ, period. That's what we want to do. And you have an opportunity to say, you know what? This is the people that I want to do it with. And Paul, knowing that we would maybe say that, like, hey, there's gonna, some people are going to say, yeah, let's do this together. He gives us some guidance on how to do that. Look here in verse 26. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. He's just saying it's not just this change in person, but it's this holistic change. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. If you're going to learn Jesus together, you can't be gossipers. You can't be a church that's filled with judgment. You can't be a church of the world. The word I hate the most, clicks. I hate that word. I heard that word so much. Where's the click? Where's the click? There's a click over here. What? What is a click? I don't even know, you know, but I'm tired of using it and I don't want to see it. I, I, I feel like probably the best definition of a click is anytime there's a circle of people and they won't let anyone else in, right? 
That's not what we want to be here. Everyone can come and every hurting person, every good, whatever it is, right? Do not let any corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is building, as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Beautiful verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, don't continue to live in this old, closed way of living by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. In verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So, my senior year, uh, first game of the playoffs. And we go down to this, um, this school in Illinois called Mount Carmel. They hadn't lost on their home field in, oh, a good, I think it was 16 years in the playoffs. We were the last seed to get in the playoffs, and uh, they were really high. Amazing picture. Their, their little uh, stadium, it, it, was this, it was called the pit, the snake pit, actually, which kind of is scary. Uh, maybe that's why they won so much. Like, we have a bunch of snakes down here, right? But it, it went up 120 rows on this hillside. Beautiful scene. And I remember at the end of this game, we're winning by a touchdown with a few minutes to go. And it had rained three inches that morning. And so all of us, every single player, was completely filled with mud. It was like the football player's dream. I mean, it was like we were muddy, and, you know, we were feeling like men. It was great. And, and I remember, because mud and men, they just go together, right? I, I, remember, I remember standing in the huddle as the quarterback and looking at a whole bunch of men who, for the first time in that game, really believed that we were going to win. And that moment, all the mud, all the dirt, all the preparation, all the time, all the naysayers, in that moment I looked around and we were one. We were different. Different men from different backgrounds, and yet we were one. I wonder if that's our chance tonight. I wonder if we can, together as a community, taste the victory that's in Christ together. Stand under one strategy and mission and vision, and that's to learn Jesus that we could see an entire city changed. I wonder then what it would look like to lock arm in arm with people here and say, we will not be moved. I don't want the old way of life anymore. I want the new way of life, and I don't want it just for me. I want it for my brothers and sisters. That's the church. That's the beauty of the church. People locked arm in arms saying, together we will learn Jesus and together we will go. There's gonna be an opportunity for you tonight to respond to all of this. Like I said, I fear many of you are in here. You've been coming flippantly connected and committed and I wanna challenge you This is no uh, bit for you to say Matthias has to be your church. I want for you what God wants. The elders here want what God wants. And if Matthias isn't supposed to be your church, so be it. But if it is, then you've seen the opportunities you have. And here in a second, as we respond on these two tables left and right, there's an opportunity. If you have yet to be connected to a lot family, you're like, you know, I've been coming for a while and I've been hanging in this corporate easy layer but I want to get more connected, then you know what? Your step could be tonight is to sign up and say, you know what? I'm ready to start journeying with a group of people more consistently. There's also another sign up for you. Coming up here February 7th is what's called the MV, the Matthias Values Class. It meets at my house every other Monday night for three Monday nights and goes through all of our vision, all of our strategy, all of the, everything that Matthias is about. And you could sign up for that and say, you know what? I'm just interested. I'm, I, I want to know more. Then that's your, that's your part. Or some of you tonight, like last week, you're like, you know what? My heart is just discipleship. No one's pouring into me. I need to grow and learn. I need to get stronger. I need my roots to dig deeper. If that's you, there's a place to say, you know what? I just want to be trained in discipleship. There's a discipleship training coming up here in a few weeks, and Jared will be in touch with you. An opportunity for you to respond all three and say, you know what? I'm tired of just sitting on the church fence. And I pray for those of you who aren't feeling, con- or aren't feeling like you're supposed to be connected here then I want to pray and plead that you'll find the place that you are. Find the place that you can serve and grow with. 
Because it's the church that I finally realized that Christ is coming back for when I was 22. I was ready to completely walk away from the church. I was tired that the church was built up of messed up people that sinned a lot. And then I remembered the gospel. I remembered the fact that Christ died on a cross and he broke his body so that the church, though torn and tattered, could be connected as one. That's the beauty of the gospel. That though we're all sinners, messed up in desperate need of God's grace, that because of the broken body of Christ, we could be one. And not just together, but in victory. The victory already has been won. And so Jesus, representing all of this, the night of the dinner with his disciples, he broke the bread. He said, this is my body. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And then he held up the cup. And he said, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant, the new promise that through my blood now and not works or not the law or not anything else, that through my sacrifice, you and the Father can be one. And he raised it and he said, take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. This meal tonight is for believers who desire to respond and say, thank you, God, for this life that you have afforded me that I have the chance to learn Jesus. But for anyone tonight, there's an opportunity to respond, to sign up for one of these things, to pray in this room, to do whatever it is tonight that you need to do to say, you know what? I do desire to learn Jesus and I need to take a step tonight in that process. I pray that tonight, as we prepare for a move to Main Street, and to look this city face to face. I pray tonight God does a work in us, unifying us in strategy, mission, and vision that we could learn Jesus together and go together. Let's pray.